1: Hello and welcome to Going Off Track. Hi. Did you like that sweet, sweet riff that Brad wrote? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sweet.
2: Open G tuning, which is something I have never used. I just told Jonah the secret to that riff is just tune your guitar to open G and then just you just pull off on the strings starting with like the B.
1: Yeah. The secret to United Nation songs, we tune in open D. Oh yeah. And so an octave chord is in the same fret. So we just do that and just move it around. Bar it.
2: The we're open on. D is is a similar tuning, just shifted over a string. Yeah, so the cord the cordage is similar.
1: Have you noticed were a lot of your songs in that tuning?
2: Yeah. The funny thing, so when I, when we started that band, I had just bought this the Goops by the way, who we're talking about. <laughs> I you just bought this red, red guitar for you geeks. It was a Gibson Spirit. I think it was like a nineteen eighty because they only made them in like two years. It's kind of like a Junior with binding. Um anyway, it became my kind of signature guitar in that band. But I just bought that guitar and didn't know what to do with it, so I tuned it to an open G just for the kicks. And um and it was the same time we started the band, which was kind of started as a joke really. So I just started writing everything in Open G and never stopped.
1: Yeah, that's how I am. And now when someone hands me a guitar in standard tuning, I feel like I can't play it.
2: <laughs> I'm like, what? I can I can play I mean I could I never had a problem with the standard tuning, but Whenever you, But what happens to me, if you give me a guitar in standard tuning, I play, like, country songs. Yeah. It, you know what I mean? Like I play the riff I from Candlebox is Far
1: Behind. <laughs> that's, like, my go-to. Or Mother by Danzig. Oh, really? Yeah. Because it's so easy and those chords are so, like... Just... No, I just
2: find myself playing, like, country rockabilly blues licks. Yeah. that's... I don't know. Maybe that's what I learned on standard tuning. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. But, uh, yeah. That's Geek Corner. That was Brad a Geek and Corner. Garner.
1: And... Today on the podcast, we have an amazing guest. I've been trying to get this guy in here for, I think, literally years. Um, He's super busy, and uh, his name is Lance Bangs, and I'm just going to read from his Wikipedia page because it's pretty incredible. Lance Bangs is an American filmmaker, documentarian, and music video director who's directed videos for Sonic Youth, Nirvana, Neutral Milk Hotel, Green Day, Arcade Fire, The Shins, The Thermals, Bell & Sebastian, Menomina, Menomina, Yeah, Yeah, Yes, R.E.M., Mike Watt, Death Cab for Cutie, The Black Keys, Kanye West, Odd Future, and Pavement. He directed the David Cross film, Let America Laughed. Banks has also been heavily involved in the filming and production of MTV's Jackass television series and its subsequent movies.
2: Not a bad (laughs)
1: resume.
2: So so they all kind of go together except for Kanye how did he get squeezed into that group I don't know uh,
1: <laughs> we didn't talk about that I wish I had read this Wikipedia page before I actually spent an hour hanging out but uh, yeah we talk about it but yeah me and Lance we, we met in Portland and uh, he's just like this incredibly productive and creative guy um, and yeah so we sat down and talked about yeah his experiences and what he's working on now and kind of the state of culture and what keeps him excited and what it's pretty, made me feel really inspired slash lazy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like. Do you ever feel that way?
2: Uh, yeah. Pretty much every time I go to a show. Yeah. I say, yeah, I used to do this. Maybe I should put together a band again. I could write a song and then that's it. And I go home and pass out.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. He, yeah. I mean, he goes to so many shows and it's so exciting. It's like, I, Feel that sometimes, but a lot of times it's like, you know, like your back starts to hurt. <laughs> like I said, cause soon, I remember I had my 30th birthday. I saw Sunday day real estate play right with the Gel Sound terminal five. And I remember it's 2007. I remember like my back starting to hurt during the show <laughs> and it was literally on my 30th birthday. And I was like, Oh, this is going to happen now. <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> it happens all the fucking time now, and That's now whenever it. boom
2: thirty downhill, it's literally
1: the day I turn thirty. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and now it's like whenever I'm a show in their seats, I'm like, oh my god, this is gonna be the best show. <laughs> like it could be someone like telling embarrassing stories about me. Um. <laughs> if I could sit down, I don't care.
2: For you kids out there, uh, I'll tell you that it's it's okay. Thirty's not bad. Yeah, it's just Jonah.
1: (laughs) It is. I think to an extent that is true. (laughs) If it's yeah, it's always something. Don't do
2: too much yoga.
1: Don't do too much. This is what happens to you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! But yeah. uh, So thank you, Lance, so much for coming on. Uh, You can. We talk about everything he's he's promoting, not promoting, but working on. I mean, it's watch. He does so many comedy specials for Comedy Central now. He's probably recorded it. He's probably worked on a video for your favorite band. He did the slint documentary um breadcrumb trail which i saw screening of which is incredible and you can you can pick that up so yeah check out all of his stuff uh ladies and gentlemen lance bangs going on
0: yeah pretty sure like a five piece from dc that are excellent
1: oh cool i haven't heard them
0: yeah noisy weird punk with a great woman singing
1: okay that's rad yeah um well thanks for coming by man yeah awesome how you doing i'm doing good how are you mostly well yeah you had a crazy night last night crazy night yeah i
0: kind of like ended up going and joining the um kind of shut it down protests that were happening for eric garner in the city last night what was what was the kind of vibe like the vibe was you know endless frustration we shouldn't be marching again why is this happening in 2014 when the fuck are things going to improve yeah like we thought we were a couple steps beyond this by now right um but there, you know, in a in a good demonstration or March, there's always just a sense of like establishing for the permanent historical record that like people thought this was fucked up and wanted to express, you know, almost like for venting and getting things out and mobilizing and being in a community community of people walking and kind of making things known. That you want to know in the future that like, yeah, forty thousand people came out that night and and shut things down and disrupted traffic and made you know, not everyone was complicit or accepting of like what things were like. Right. So even if it does feel futile or like, what is this achieving? There's an energy to being in a crowd during a demonstration. There's a, there's a, you know, there's ways that it heals some people's feelings. There's ways that it gives you a way to kind of build networks or infrastructure to kind of keep things going.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't
0: know. It's important to me whether it's happy or not.
1: No, 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 totally. I feel like it's it's just hard to push through that futility. I feel like sometimes, yeah. you know, just in general of anything sometimes yeah for sure it is you
0: know it's a crippling thing to kind of like see the news coming out and 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 not be able to process like why these decisions are being made the way that they are and that things aren't being there isn't like an equitable justice system in this country that's working for everyone
1: yeah definitely i mean um and you're in town working on some other stuff i mean i feel like you're here a lot huh i'm here a lot recently there's some stuff that i
0: don't know if i can talk about quite yet that Yeah, uh, yeah That's fine. It's very exciting that I'm working on that is kind of like surprisingly drawn me to be in New York. But the things that are like kind of known and discussable, um, I'm directing a Comedy Central special for a performer named Bridget Everett that uh, Kathleen Hanna is helping write for, which has been great. No way, that's awesome. Having her kind of develop that side of herself is awesome. And uh, Adam Horowitz plays in Bridget Everett's band, and it's just a great contingent of people, and Bridget's amazing, and sort of that, that... crowd of new people to collaborate with has been really inspiring exciting that'll be a comedy central special that we're gonna shoot at joe's pub in a, another week or two so i been kind of coming out to prep that and get ready for that a bunch and then also um slater kenny were in town doing some press for a couple days so it worked out timing wise to be around nice so that's going on then i've also been uh on the east coast while doing these other projects shooting a bunch of footage with a great band from new brunswick new jersey um called screaming females yes and so we've been making a bunch of uh Sort of documentary footage and and pieces to help a record that they're putting out early next year.
1: Gotcha. You know, it's crazy. I actually went to, grew up with one of the guys who does Don Giovanni. Oh, right on. Joe? Uh, The other is Zach. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We grew up in the same town in Ohio. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But you know what? It's crazy. So when we met, um, we were in Portland. Yeah. And me and Vanessa were staying at Fred's place. And Vanessa's like, Fred's friend wanted, friends want to take us out to dinner. I was like, all right. It's like Lance and and Corinne, and I had no idea. And I was like, Who? And she looked it up and she's like, uh, Lance bangs. And I was like, what? It was so crazy. And then you guys took us out and it was so nice. Yeah.
0: That was a great night. Um, basically for people that, you know, don't know and no one should, uh, (laughs) you and Vanessa came out to visit Portland for a little bit and we're kind of, you know, exploring the town and Gordon and I took you out to a fun restaurant and had a great conversation and and got to know you.
1: Yes. And then you took us to that bar where I feel like with like the velvet walls on it, (laughs) do you I remember what to, I, I felt remember. like I was tr- getting like some like I felt like there was some Elliot Smith story there or oh some yeah kind of oh like, Dots Do we go to yeah. Dots yeah
0: so Dots is a great kind of long running um, I think it's fair to call it grimy like you know little spot in uh, southeast Portland and it was a place in the early 90s it felt very much like what if someone was going to be in Los Angeles and art directed film of like the 90s northwest like this is the template for what things were sort of you know velvet on the walls velvet paintings Dark, dark, seductive booths to like go drunkenly meet up with someone and and talk and get to know them before heading back to go snuggle up in a sleeping bag somewhere like a very like hazy uh, northwest yeah. seductive room. A lot of people fell in love at dots was the uh, the thing that Jody Biley used to always say. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, but it was definitely like a sort of a you know Elliot Smith, Spinanes, Hazel, early nineties Portland rock kind of place.
1: That's crazy. Did you see Elliot Smith a lot when you were Yeah, there? quite a bit when he was really? up
0: there. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. A lot of good stuff going on culturally in Portland in the early 90s. Yeah?
1: yeah. I mean, what? how do you feel about it now?
0: It's still great. I, yeah. I feel like I'm not there enough to really be the right person to declaratively say, like, what is, you know, right. going on in 2014, 2015 there. Um, but it's always been a great place with, like... Not always. I guess I started going there before. But it was... a. Uh, it's a place that in recent years has had just a great contingent of people showing up and, and being young and having energy and making interesting new work, whether it's art or film or music or poetry or you know writing. Just a lot of good characters kind of coming there as a weird outpost away from other places that they are in the U.S. and, and settling there and, and contributing and adding to it. I don't feel like it's gotten, you know, negated or fucked up from that momentum yet. I feel like things are still progressing and there's still interesting new things popping up. How did you end up, so were you in Athens before that? I was in Athens, Georgia, and really in Athens, Georgia during most of the time that I started being in Portland was kind of going back and forth between the two. So I I was in a a military family that moved around quite a bit and was in a lot of the deep south, like Valdosta, Georgia, Montgomery, Alabama, and the different parts of New Jersey during high school, um, kind of like Willingboro, which is this kind of fascinating uh, community that people could read about if they were ever curious. It's just such a weird thing that ever happened. Uh, This place, Willingboro, New Jersey, different parts of like Mount Holly, Smithville, kind of across from philadelphia and south of new york city and then there's like a great music scene at this venue city gardens in trenton new jersey um where you could see shows and kind of discover stuff but basically uh left there as a teenager went down to athens georgia and just loved athens it's a magical place that was so conducive to like making things and and being an artist and, and performer and creating stuff and then in 92 started going back and forth to visit portland oregon um and just, you know, travel the country, like with bands would jump in a van and just go travel. And of all the places at that time period, like Louisville, Kentucky and Portland, Oregon were the two cities that really connected with me where I felt like the characters that were running around were really inspiring and exciting and sort of recognize them as like walking saints or people that I felt a kinship or connection to um, more so than like San Francisco or L.A. or, you know, other kind of more commercialized scenes. And so made an effort to kind of go start crashing with people in Portland and would go stay with like the people in that band Hazel, like Jody Bliley or Pete Krebs or um, Brady Smith. And then Elliot Smith was around and uh, the Spinanes, just really good characters at that time period. And so started renting a room out there for cheap and, you know, going back and forth in this weird bi-coastal axis between Athens, Georgia and Portland, Oregon. And then talking other people into coming out to Portland. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it worked. It worked. Yeah. It really <laughs> was like, it felt like this bizarre, you know, shipping town outpost that was really kind of beat up and gray, but had this great feel and look to it and was so inexpensive and, and cheap to live in, but it was like talking other bands into coming out there. And like, you know, I would go like direct a video for the Shins and then try and talk them into like, you should really come to Portland, leave Albuquerque. Would you go up to Seattle a lot? Yeah. But Seattle felt really kind of like imposing and, had all these glass buildings and high rises and wealthy people and microsoft and starbucks and all that right. Boeing, going all that kind of thing whereas portland felt like this very kind of like real working-class grimy outpost where you could go right in a notebook <laughs> so uh yeah like you know Seattle. seattle was fun if you had to go see like a big show or concert or something that wouldn't come to small market like but it felt like wealthier than what my imagination of the world was at the time yeah or how i would feel comfortable
1: does I that see, make sense? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. But it seems like also Portland, now. like, isn't Nike there? Like they have I guess they are, there. but they're
0: more in this, like, weird suburb called Beaverton that's, like, outside. You know, I okay. could be misinformed about this. I feel like they... I don't feel like their presence in the city the way that, like, did, Seattle did feel, like, tall glass buildings. Right, and right. Bank of America Towers and stuff like that. Yeah. Four Seasons.
1: This neighborhood know. is turning into that is as it? well. Yeah, I mean, so many of these crazy condos. Yeah. Um, so did you meet, Karen through working with Slater, Kenny? Yeah, I, uh, you know, again,
0: I. I would sort of like make personal films and and work with bands and was in Athens, Georgia at the time when uh when they came through and played. I think it was when Call the Doctor came out. They probably came through in the spring of 96 and played at the 40 Watt Club in Athens, Georgia. And as, you know, people get hyperbolic and exaggerate how few people were at a show, but I really feel like there were, you know, less than 10 to 12 people at that show. And I was just blown away and fascinated by both, you know, Carrie and Corin's performance at that, Thing And seeing them both at the same time doing those songs and, you know, to the day that record, Call the Doctor, still remains my favorite. The songs like stay Where You Are just felt so piercing and and alive. And again, I felt this like intense recognition of them and what their life experiences might have been that were similar to mine and that we were of a a similar sensibility. And um, kind of approached them and talked, but I think it was really more Carrie that I spoke to that night and sort of exchange addresses and the idea of like maybe filming something or collaborating as they were going to like record or write their next record. And um found reasons. I kept driving around the South, like working on some personal films and playing a cassette tape of, of Call the Doctor over and over and getting deeper and deeper into that record. And then in the September of that year, Elliot Smith was going to play, um, I think it was called CMJ. There was like a couple times they shifted names of whatever that fall music industry thing in New York City was, whether it was a new music seminar or, or CMJ, whatever it was called at that time. But um, on my birthday, Elliot was going to play at the Knitting Factory. So I was going to go kind of catch up with him and, and see stuff in the city during that time in the fall of 96 and um, filmed him playing there. And then Slater Kinney were in town and people were just really excited about their record and kind of caught up to it over the summer. And so, you know, I remember going to see them a couple of times at like Coney Island high and we ran around that we went to the world trade center to go hang out, like just sort of connected with them and started tagging along. But again, really it was like Carrie that I might've first like been talking or corresponding to. And Corin seemed almost like intimidating or, you know, slightly like scary or imposing or so powerful with what she can do when she's singing. Um, whereas like Carrie might have been like goofier and and smileier and more like hey, you know, an initial approach. Um, but felt this weird connection and then started uh, filming their shows. And then there was a show right around them where they played on the cooler on the west side. And it, I kind of talked to a bunch of people and was like, you got to come see this band, it's amazing. And I feel like we ended up outside because it was so packed and so sweaty and just like sweat was dripping from the walls and, and i looked around and it was like i would brought spike and the beastie boys were there and kim and thurston and it felt like okay everybody's here to see this amazing thing this is it's, it's happening you know but i think at the same time they were also playing like meow mix and lesbian bars and you know right. they really like did as many shows as they could during that span of time um so it felt like the thing i'd fallen in love with musically over the the spring or summer it's always encouraging when you see that kind of like catching people's imagination or taking hold or like gaining a foothold and and that like this could, you know, this record on Chainsaw records that Donna Dresch put out could like find an audience or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just extremely exciting. So started, uh, went out to Olympia. And at the time I would normally stay at um, Lois, who put out records on K Records, uh, her place while I was like on, in Olympia. And I think she'd gone to Japan and, like, I, I think I had a house key or something, you know, so it was, like, the place I would normally go crash when I was, like, visiting Olympia and left Athens to go out there to go shoot some stuff. And um, there was, like, a miscommunication, and Corn was actually, like, house-sitting for Lois. And so, like, I think I might have, you know, shown up at night with my bags and camera gear and a key and opened a door, and it's like, oh, who who are you? What's going on? And you're like, oh, my God, hey, it's Corn. You know, this sort of, like, slightly awkward sitcom uh, plot line type of thing happened. But we just started hanging out, and then... um I think we ended up my idea was that I wanted to film them writing whatever their next record was gonna be when Carrie and Corin would just the idea of like the way that their vocals intertwine and their guitar parts were interlocking that to see how that happens in a room, like how do two people write something that's so intertwined, um, seemed fascinating to me. And so tried to shoot some stuff, but then ended up uh this like strange relationship broke out instead that was like wasn't expected and didn't see coming. And then we've been uh basically together since that time period.
1: That's amazing. I mean, that era kind of like in the Pacific Northwest of like Bikini Kill or like Nirvana yeah. or that stuff, I feel like, you know, I was like in high school, so I was a little too young to actually witness it. I mean, what did it feel like to kind of be in that? Did it just feel like, oh, there are all these cool bands? No, it didn't just feel like that. It felt like finally
0: the fucked up world that has been oppressively existing above us is cracking and being infiltrated and taken over and it's about time. It felt like being kind of smothered or buried under like... um Oh, it's hard to explain how oppressive it really felt like there was such a dominating effect from the the number the sheer number of people and the economic power that like the baby boomers had just stifled any any visibility for like underground or youth co- you know not even like underground just like you couldn't see anybody that was like 19 or 20 years old represented in the culture you know like wow. everything was like you know the night belongs to mick Loeb ads with You know, like fucking uh, Eric Clapton or whatever. Like, that just dominated the airwaves and the back of magazines and the print ads and the billboards and the what was being played on commercial breaks. Like, just everything that you saw in the culture was, like, these significantly older, boring, safe, coked-out people in a way that was just appalling. And so you would love a cassette that you got of a band, and there was no chance that that would ever turn up on the radio or get hurt. You know, like, you would have to find other weirdo kids to go see at a naked Reagan show at city gardens. And that was never going to make it onto the radio or whatever. Right. Um, So when things felt alive and exciting and transcendent and, and mind roasting like Nirvana did and significant and important, it was such a bummer that like it wouldn't, you know, like that sliver single when it came out should have been everywhere, but like it was only going to end up on like a college radio shift at three in the morning, one time during that week. And that was the extent of it being through the airwaves, you know? Um, so when that broke through and that stuff was getting heard and, and Bikini Kill's name would pop up in a magazine, it felt not just like, oh, cool, but it felt this is crucial and important and, and massively significant and it and represents a, a shift in like, maybe things are going to be, uh, expressing what it feels like to be 19 or 20 rather than 45.
1: Yeah. That's really Interesting. At least that's that was my experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you I mean, what do you feel about kind of like the that culture like today? I mean, do you feel like I know you're into like a lot of newer bands, but I also feel like so much of pop is so kind of superficial and that type of stuff.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, like I'm enjoying more of what's breaking through now culturally than the sort of default stuff that was going on then, like you know, Wild Wild West or Bon Jovi right. or whatever that really was being played endlessly on the radio back at that time. Like the the freedom of people to really just hear whatever now and disseminate information about new bands is so much more liberating and exciting to me than, than the confines of what was going on back then. There was a great personal, you know, sense of getting a a handmade mixtape from someone and and finding out about the feelies or, you know, free kitten or some weird Lydia lunch thing at that time. Um, but like, being able to do that now and send it to people who aren't in the same town as you right in time that they could go see that band that night. Like, if you look online and see that, you know, Perfect Pussy is coming through Ohio and you can let all your friends in Ohio know, yeah, drop what you're doing and go see this live while it's this great.
1: But it seems like you have this, like, incredible ability to kind of, like, be at the right place at the right time, whether that's, like, with Slint or Milk Hotel or... I mean, like, do people hit you up all the time? Like, because I feel like you have actual footage of all this stuff happening, yeah. too. Like, yeah. it must be so...
0: It was. It's just always been important to me. I I felt like there were things that happened to me that were really traumatic when I was young, where I didn't feel like I was supposed to be. People were not trying to let me be alive, and I got out of it. And from that point on, just felt like I don't want to work a straight job. I don't want to. I am lucky to be here at this point and not dead. And I only want to go to the places that I think are interesting, and I am going to do whatever it takes to get there and be present and not miss things. And so, was you know, just like traveling and making things, and would find a way to get to where Nirvana shows were going to happen because this is massively significant and important to me. And that you don't blow that opportunity and just be like, oh, I'm going to watch this sitcom Seinfeld tonight. Like, right. you know, get there and go see Nirvana and all three opening bands and one of those is going to be, you know what I mean? It just, it felt so crucial. One of those is going to be Jawbreaker or whatever, you know. So, um, but there has been a lot of weird luck too. Like just the things around me, the places I've chosen to go live that, you know, it was in Athens, Georgia, during the whole time that that Jeff Mangum came from Ruston, Louisiana and started putting together synthetic flying machine and then Nutramilk Hotel and writing all the songs and ended up being like housemates during that time period. And uh, was also leaving Athens and driving up to Louisville, Kentucky and filming all the weird ghosts of stories about the band Slint and kind of chasing them down from that time period onwards. And just holding on to this weird personal archive of footage until it was time to like assemble it into a, a proper film and show it to the people.
1: I mean, but I, what I and we talked about this before, but I think it's so cool is you've kind of been able to kind of sustain that excitement. I feel like it's easy, like, as you get older, to be like, my back hurts. I don't right. feel like going out tonight. Like,
0: No, like, I, I don't know. I'm in, I'm in these streets. I, I feel, like, <laughs> excited to kind of keep making things. Like, there's been a great thing going on recently. We mentioned that band Screaming Females earlier, who, you know, they've been around for a while and just sort of plugging away, making a, a string of records. But they're on to something now where something has really clicked and they've refined what they're doing and what that band is expressing and Marissa's songwriting and the feelings behind some of the the things is really caught my imagination. And they came through, you know, sometimes the things I do I have to kind of be secret about for a while until they can become known. So we shot that film, Bad Grandpa, that like uh, jackass film with Knoxville maybe two years ago. And the approach was to use it all with like real people and hidden cameras in places they wouldn't expect that they were being filmed for a movie. So we were in a, you know, Gary, Indiana or different parts of North Carolina, South Carolina for long periods of time. And if you let people know in the town that you're there working on that, then, like, word gets around and people, you know, you things that you spend a day filming, like, get sabotaged because people know that it's a joke or right. that that's really Johnny Knoxville, not an old man. So at night, though, when you're in those towns, like, it's important to me to go be, you know, present and, and active with, like, the culture that is exciting to me that's still being generated. And so there's a venue there called The Milestone that's, like, one of the longest running punk venues. You know, it's a place that Black Flag and Minor Threat and R.E.M. played, like, in 81 or so um it's still there and so i would go see shows there while in north carolina and you know a lot of bands came through during the time i was there but this band screaming females played a show and it just felt like okay something really connected with them and me where they were a similar sensibility they were coming out of new jersey a place i'd been for part of high school there's some shared life experience or something recognition in each other but i wasn't able to say like oh i'm making a hidden camera jackass movie you know because like, right we right right so they're like what are you doing here <laughs> where's corin what it's like a kenny in town like no <laughs> um but they came through portland an, earlier a couple weeks ago and just reconnected and, and ended up jumping in the van with them and shooting all this footage and i'd thought and not to be like harsh about anything that you might take the wrong way but like my sense of like what bands were doing now was partly that there's a whole world of like we're playing at the vitamin water tent at the fader ford at the sponsored by nike festival, you know, there's so much commodification of things of like the way that you have to make a living with sponsorship now or, or perceived to be that way. That Like seeing a band that was generally like jumping in a van for like weeks at a time, sleeping on people's dog beds after shows that they would meet and not having money for hotels and just making a point to go play every weird all ages space in the middle of nowhere. And the kids that come out to see that and how important it is to those people was like this really exciting recognition of like, oh, this this continuum of sort of jump in the van and just go do this indie rock underground subculture is still a real thing. And that, that, you know, that continuum exists and that, you know, they're younger, they're probably in their mid to late twenties, this band, and they have read the book of our band Could Be Your Life and like, felt like, yeah, that's what we want to do. And that they're really, you know, we were, we were in like Cleveland, Mississippi at Delta College for whatever weirdo kids would come out in the middle of nowhere in the fall to come see them and Pujol from Nashville and a weirdo local band and you know like right. meeting the current crop of 19 and 20 year olds that are like excited to go check that stuff out was really reinvigorating and exciting and seeing a band that sort of like books their own tours and isn't part of the larger racketeer version of the music industry was really refreshing and exciting and and inspiring and the music was you know really just blazing and and, and moving
1: yeah it makes me want to like just never play guitar when i listen to them I'm yeah like, oh, i'm so bad i've been doing this for so long yeah
0: And it's great because, like, as we went along that tour and shot more footage, we'd go back to places that I'd been a million, not uh, being hyperbolic, places (laughs) I'd been multiple times with, like, you know, uh, 5'8 or Nirvana or Pavement or tagging along on, on tours of bands in the early 90s, going back to Birmingham, Alabama, for example, which has always been, like, a hit and miss place, and realize that, like, not only is there the Bottle Tree, which is this great venue now, but there's this record store that wouldn't have existed in 91 or 90, you know, that, like, is making a point to carry underground culture and that all these queer kids and a much more like racially diverse crowd is coming out to see this show. And it felt like things had progressed and gotten better than where they were 15, 20 years ago. That like, there's more of a subculture of mixed people kind of all coming out to see this thing at an independent record store in 2014 than there would have been in 93 or whatever. It it felt like things were even improving on that continuum from where they'd been a long time ago. So it was really inspiring and, and exciting to see how that band conducts themselves and the stuff that they're doing. And, the live shows and the way that people were reacting to it um i don't know it was very inspiring nashville is way better now than it ever was you yeah know? um so then when we went up the east coast and passed through dc i took them to go visit ian at the discord house and kind of like show them around and we went down to the basement to go you know kind of show them where all the teen idols and minor threat and fugazi songs have been written and just kind of be in that space and i don't know it felt like this like i was excited to show i'm sure ian's fully aware of like things that are you know but like no, this is still like this continuum exists, and like they're going to go play the black cat tonight, and they're they're not doing the vitamin water.
1: Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're, yeah, they're for real. Dude, I can't believe I'm You are just like, oh, let's go to Ian's head <laughs> the Discord house. I would like lose my mind. Yeah,
0: um, and and to know that he's been following them and corresponding with Daniel from Pujol, like that he's still actively engaged in everything that's like really? going on with like emerging bands and independent labels. It's just like seeing both sides of that was really great. Just even for me, like another batch of like injection of like another dose of inspiration of, you know, this is all worth contributing to and, and not just like directing dumb
1: commercials or, or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Definitely. I think, well, I think you're also good at really uh, like reconciling that stuff. Like it seems like you do so much big budget type stuff, but then you do, you know, like,
0: yeah. Like I'm always kind of making personal films or you know, like no one's funding that stuff. It's just stuff I am compelled to go make and I'm sure that at some point it'll find a form and way of being expressed. Or Sean?
1: Um Bad Grandpa, I saw I saw the unedited version yeah. kind of recently. And uh I felt like the relationship between Giant Knoxville and that kid was so touching. Was I wasn't expecting it, it at all. How much they
0: really like
1: connected. And like I, you know, I don't want to speak
0: for him or give out wrong information, but like just watching that all play out in real time, like we'd lost ryan dunn in a really disappointing and and frustrating death um and you know we're all getting older and there's a realization of mortality and people passing away and then the effect of your body of the things that you've done to it that it felt like knoxville was dealing with some of those issues in the course of making that film and you know waking up early every day and then getting a version of your what you're going to look like as your body ages and deteriorates and falls apart and having to like psychologically sit there for several hours is that unfolds and then go out and live that existence for a while and your manisms are all slowing down and you're walking with a limp and you know at a slower pace and knowing that like all the times you got to be like huh what like that like really your hearing is gonna head that way you know like yeah doing it all that and then having this kid who is this just like genuine like fucking like dick of a kid like that kid was cast because he really is funny and you know giving you the finger and like doesn't care and just wants to go fishing and you know um He's great. So the dynamic of them like having these long conversations and driving around while there's just like some cameras planted in the car, they really went some intense psychological connection places that were kind of fascinating to see.
1: Yeah, that is so wild. Yeah. Um and that scene in the strip club made me oh so nervous. Yeah. It was like so hard for
0: me to watch. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Were you the, in there when that was happening?
0: I, I was not there for the strip club, no. Like, you know, the main the main core of the film, it's, you know, Jeff Tremaine directs those and this guy, Dimitri Ilyoskovich who's the main director of photography, like, I just kind of pop in and, and shoot uh, some of the other sequences here and there. But yeah, I, I was not there for the strip club, but man, that was crazy. I guess I did the exterior as a strip club, but not the, like, interior part yeah. that night.
1: But it's funny, I've seen you, like, yeah, like, it's funny seeing you in Jackass when they're just, like, in a meeting or something yeah. and you're just, like, <laughs> hanging out. Yep. It's very weird, and that Portlandia thing you did with Fred was so funny. Too. Oh yeah, thanks. That was a good one. Yeah, I mean, do you like being in front of it? Because I feel no. no, no. I've I've avoided it for so long.
0: Felt really uncomfortable about it. Kind of didn't want to be represented or projected anywhere, and uh, would kind of actively like duck out or avoid things like this for a long time. And then with the jackass thing, was trying very much not to be on camera, and would like you know wear like a protective visor so you couldn't see my face or whatever. But um i think the guys liked the idea like you know they're they're great sharp weirdo characters like they knoxville is like a genuine super fascinating mind inside that guy and like what his he's an excellent writer and like conceptual guy before going into all this stuff he's not just some like numbskull right he might try and play it up to be like he you know he's sharp and well-read and really insightful and just a super charismatic personality And was a great writer before finding this, you know, outlet or expression of, like, his innate ability to be charming and take abuse. Um, So I was trying to just kind of be, you know, not represented and not get shown. Because in my mind, I was this, like, poetic filmmaker character that was, like, got talked into, like, going and shooting the sort of personality elements of, of Jackass to help. And then... I guess in the TV show when they were doing like the more elaborate things like having Brad Pitt for a day or doing a bunch of money on like makeup effects or whatever that they'd bring me in to kind of shoot for those to make sure they had coverage and that things were going to work and that they didn't miss it or whatever. And then just had a great time and camaraderie with some of those guys and started being the one that could get good personality or or discussion or conversation out of them for bits. Uh, And then when we did the first film, Spike conceptually was thinking like, I don't know how long you can watch these like start, set up, stop bits over and over if you watch like 30 of those in a row that are a minute long like are you just going to be fatigued and not able to sustain it for a feature-length film so the concept was that I would go shoot sort of documentary or personal stuff like getting the guys engaged in conversation or showing like what goes into making a bit or how to get people to sign a release afterwards or whatever if we needed to is like a connective tissue for the film and then once you started watching them play out with like music or just the seeing a title come up on screen you didn't really need that that much it turned out like you really could watch it as a non-narrative Way And a lot of early filmmaking wasn't really narrative and stories are kind of for babies, to be honest. But uh, just as an expression of cinema, it was like satisfying to to kind of watch that all. So what ended up kind of working was that I would get coverage of like the crazier things happening or people talking to camera, the kind of personality or admission of fear or like, I don't know about this kind of stuff that maybe I was better at drawing out than if I hadn't been there. Um, So then when they started trying to like get me on camera, it was mortifying (laughs) and uh and then like you know having people recognize you afterwards was you know it felt like you know because at the time there was like a lack of you know i'm not like an extreme sports dude or like a shredding the bowl skate type of character and so um popping up in that world was like funny
1: but it seems like not, you know, like with the Made in America thing, and yeah. like you, you've done more kind of on camera stuff. Was, was there something that shifted where you were just like, well, this is. Yeah, isn't people so- kept asking me to do more stuff yeah. on
0: camera or talking me into it. And I, I was fine. Like I did a lot of stuff early on where I would use my voice or, or speaking and uh, sort of narration stuff, and I was comfortable with that. Um, so yeah, people have, have kind of like talked me into doing a little bit more stuff on camera.
1: Yeah, because I guess, because I got into CKY through CKY2K, and I had never seen anything like that, and they kind of spaced that out with, like, the skating, and then they'd have the thing. Totally. Um, and, and, yeah, so... Yeah. So much of that stuff was so mean-spirited, but so funny. Yeah. Like, I'd be like, ah, oh, but it's like, I, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, it's
0: rotten to be throwing things off of an overpass, and they're lucky they didn't hurt or kill anybody. Yes. But it is hard not to giggle when that when you're a t- teenager and that footage comes up, you know?
1: Exactly. And I feel like, I mean, people asking you to do stuff, I mean, people must ask you to do stuff all the time. I feel like you've been so generous with your time with me, especially me. And how do you kind of, like, manage your time I guess because I feel like I can never get anything done sometimes I'm just kind of compulsively making stuff all
0: day from the time I wake up I'm you know editing or going through footage or looking at cuts or shooting new stuff or finding something I want to go do and normally when people sort of like finish their day or are done for the night I'm finding something else at night I want to drive off and go find or I don't know I just am endlessly excited and alive to hear new stuff and see new things that are happening and like being in a car is a chance to listen to music or listen to a conversation in a podcast or so I don't. I don't know. I don't get that fatigued or or wiped out. Do by you it too sleep much. a lot? No, I don't. I should sleep more. <laughs> right. Um, but you were doing stuff late last night. I was doing stuff late. last yeah, night. Yeah, that's
1: true. That's true. It's hard. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to see in like yeah. your own self. I guess I feel like everyone else is always like way more productive than me. Yeah. But, but today I'll go work on this. You know, this kind of secret project we're building right now, and then after that we're
0: gonna have this giant party, and I'm directing a shoot of that, and then trying to do some interviews late at night afterwards, and then. Finish a music video tomorrow, and
1: yeah, a lot of stuff. How do you approach like a like a huge shoot like that? Like, is it does it just like because I feel like people must just like come up like, how do we do this? How do we do this? It's like I feel like how do you know? I
0: you know from shooting so much stuff early on, I just know where I want the camera to be. I know almost intuitively when someone's going to step forward and and do some great move before the other vocalist takes the mic. Like I just am able to sort of like lock into the music and and move the camera from one place to another and cover that, um, from being so deeply connected to the music maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then I know where I want to put other cameras in the room and what coverage they're getting and what lens I told them to be at and what, um, framing I told them to be at so that in my mind I can sort of imagine like, okay, if we cut to, if this guy's back behind me 20 feet and is it a 72 millimeter lens at this composition, I know that I can cut from what I'm shooting to that.
1: Okay. So
0: that's the, that's been the, the, the thing that's worked so far.
1: Amazing. And then when you said kind of stories are for babies, I thought that was an amazing line. I mean, is it It must be so frustrating for you to like go to the movies when like they start like explaining the plot or yeah. something. I mean, like, is it hard to tell you? I might have a to- completely warped perspective. You know, like,
0: for me, I'm just fascinated to watch footage. I love making my own connections in my mind. I love when music and visuals sync up and have some third thing that gets generated from the synthesis of them. And I, I'm less drawn to, like... um is the detective gonna find out that the chief was corrupt? He is, because <laughs> right, that's right. how every movie, goes. like, you know, uh, I'm less compelled by that, and so, I don't know, people always ask like, oh, when are you gonna make a real movie, or when are you gonna do a narrative <laughs> film? And I've generally turned those down over the years, or not been excited or inspired to to make many of those, and find those less compelling. Certainly there's a lot of great work being done now, like there's, you know, TV's probably better than it's ever been for dramatic stuff, there's more interesting films getting made recently, but uh, I'm, fascinated to make documentaries and to blend footage and sound and picture and create things that way that that for me trigger a deeper feeling than whether Cameron Diaz is going to get the car to the wedding shop before it closes or whatever.
1: When you're watching something though like are you thinking like technically like oh I don't like that shot or I would like is it hard for you to like get out of that space? Yeah
0: I I don't think I get too wrapped up in that although I was watching uh there's a, a fairly mediocre um, Susan Sarandon and Melissa McCarthy movie that came out called Tammy. And okay. I was watching that with a friend recently and just noticed that like somebody that's operating one of the cameras is like focusing on the background or the wall and not the people's faces during most of the stuff that they're shooting. So like you'll see Melissa McCarthy deliver some line and then it'll cut to like Susan Sarandon and like you can read all the text of the books that are on the shelf behind her. But her nose and face and eyes are all out of focus because like they just set the focus back before she sat in to be filmed. And it just took me out of the movie and was like, what, how inept are the people making this? (laughs) Do you ever watch your own stuff or is it like, I, you know, um, only when I have to project it for people at events and then I'll like sit in and watch it. And it's weird because I, I've done some things that like are over such a long span of time that like you're hearing your voice when you were 19 years old and some of the slint stuff or a trip that you took when you got Dan Donahue to jump in the car and drive up from Athens to Louisville and, go to this creepy party like that footage that you made with a camcorder is now like projected on a giant screen and the only illumination in the room is the light hitting the silver um and it, it's such a transporting thing and one of the best experiences of my life happened uh I, I traveled with that film and kind of took it around to go show it 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 spaces all around the country and, and internationally as well and just sort of like introducing it and telling stories and as, as many times as possible brought one of the members of Slint or someone else that had been involved to kind of come you know, talk or answer questions afterwards. But we, um, did it in Philadelphia. There's a great culture going on in that city. Now there's, uh, so many good bands and artists and, and things happening. And one of the things that's exciting to me, there's a place called the Phila Mocha, the Philadelphia Mausoleum of Contemporary Art, which is like a, a space that used to be a mausoleum company. And this guy, Eric is kind of programming stuff there and putting on events and live performances and screening films. We showed it there and, uh, you know, that film hinges largely on this fascination I had with, um, that record, but also this personality, this guy, Britt Walford, who was this, the drummer, but who also wrote a significant amount of the material on the record beyond the drumming, like wrote vocals and, and lines for the guys to play. And, you know, certainly it was a collaborative record, but like in a way you might just assume that most drummers are not the ones that are steering, Right? didn't, didn't compose these songs on a piano and then teach it to the rest of the band. Like, uh, it, it's unusual. And he's a very unusual character. And one of the people that I you know, again, that sort of recognition of like walking saints or people that are out there in the world that you really respond to or connect with what their mind is generating. Um, a lot of the film hinges on like a fascination with him. And so another character that I'd really identified with in high school, there's a woman that was a classmate of mine who was completely out of time. Like her, her family was one of those Irish Catholic families that, you know, she was probably born like 30 years, you know, like unexpectedly to people that were significantly older that thought they were done having their six (laughs) or seven kids. And, she came along. She lived in this strange town that was mostly old people. Like Basically, it was a town across from Philadelphia that had been developed. And then the suburban development and planning thing, once that got invented after Levittown and hit you know, this tri-state area, uh, people built new houses and new places to go live inexpensively. And so if you were going to start a family, you'd move to one of those. This town got kind of left behind. It wasn't one of those. It was predated those as like a you know, maybe like between the two world wars that had been built or something. So everyone in it was generally like older people and anyone that was like getting a job in Philly or Camden that was young would go move to leave one of these new suburbs that were getting built. Um, so everything about her was like a good 30 years delayed. We were in, you know, high school and during the Bon Jovi era and she was this very like, you know, uh, Audrey Hepburn type character out of sync with everything that was going on around her. It was like super fascinating. Um, and she's been extremely elusive and hard to pin down, and even among like her friends, like just is this like ghostly presence that like rarely responds or turns up and isn't really actively findable on social media or Facebook or email or whatever. And uh, she turned up at this screening, which we'd all been hoping we would see her. You know, people I'd known in, in high school in New Jersey at this event, and she like, you know, came in separately, alone, without anyone noticing her. And I just sort of like it, one moment that that film was being projected. The light coming off of Britt Walford being shot in his darkened bedroom somewhere in the 90s, like openly, con- you know, finally revealing secrets of like how that record was made or what was going on with them at that time and why there hasn't been a continuum of that that's easily followable since and why they were always using fake names or breaking up the band or disappearing or, you know, all these like fascinating questions that that record kind of triggers in people. The light from that interview with him coming off of that screen in this great art space, was the only thing that illuminated her in the back of the room. And I saw her for the first time in a decade or so and was like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Like, like she's of a similar sensibility as Britt Walford. Maybe the light of my travels, like filming him in a darkened room or now lighting her in a darkened room. And this weird connection is, is something I'll always remember and treasure. And I'm glad that I made this film and that I've made the choices I have and have run around and appear in Philadelphia projecting it tonight.
1: That's amazing.
0: It was great. And then she slipped out and none of us got to talk to her afterwards. (laughs)
1: Yeah, we hung out, I remember, before the Nighthawk screening. And yeah. Then, there was another screening you weren't at, but I went to at the White Hotel, I oh, think. Oh, yeah. And the, the, some of those guys are interviewed, and it was so funny, because matter is trying to get all this stuff out of them, yeah. and they were just like, it was It was hilarious. Yeah,
0: they're just impenetrable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That making that film was such a great
0: experience, because it really was like a process of sifting and refining and honing and repeated attempts at getting them comfortable and able to talk in a way that they never had been able to, to sort of open up about that record in their lives.
1: That's amazing. I mean, do you, have you done any more stuff with Jeff Magnum? I mean, yeah,
0: we've been shooting stuff off and on. And, you know, during the period of time that he was sort of, you know, in, in relatively in seclusion, um, we would meet up and, you know, he would keep having ideas about ways to kind of go through footage and put something out generally, like he would get, you know, want to help people in some way like there'd be some cause or some you know political event or charity that needed help that had registered on his mind and he would track me down and we would meet up to kind of like look at footage or send things back and forth like can we benefit these people by putting together like all the acoustic sets and releasing those or what about just the live full band performances from the 90s or like the writing process you know just like seeing what existed and what could help some you know, benefit or, or charity, or whatever. And then like inevitably, as it got closer, those things would like get shelved or, or hidden away again and not released. So there's been, you know, ideas of different live compilations or video footage or live sets of the full
1: band or acoustic sets, you know, that we've kind of gone through at different times and then never quite put out. That's amazing I mean it seems like you're such a social person, but also like guys like these kind of secluded people sort of yeah. like keep you in your life i mean do you understand that sensibility yeah absolutely. a lot of people yeah. don't they're like oh people love your music why aren't you just touring all yeah. the time no i completely get it and like there's
0: massive chunks of my own work that i wouldn't let out into the world or that i would hold on to and maybe people can dig through
1: it when i'm dead <laughs> oh man so what else what else do you have? Uh, is there anything else you can sort of talk about? I, yeah. mean, I feel like you always have so much. Is it that meltdown thing still happening?
0: Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's been announced. So I hope it's okay to say it, but they asked us to do a second season. So we're kind of figuring out like the timing of when everyone's available to uh, to do that. You know, obviously like Jonah and Kumail are both very busy with other projects that they do, and there's another season of uh, Silicon Valley shooting right now, so we'd have to figure out like when everyone's All right. schedule works out. But we would love to make another batch of those shows for Comedy Central.
1: That's awesome. Do you still go to a lot of standup shows? I do.
0: That's been a really interesting thing in recent years. Like, I guess, like from the mid '90s onwards, I was uh, hanging out socially and going to that um, Mr. Show when they would do those in Los Angeles. And David Cross was like, you know, pretty active in like music culture, and Bob Odenkirk's a big music fan as well. So that era of, of comedians were really fascinating, and the work that they're doing was like definitely different from like what I'd seen on TV prior to them. Um, So running around in that crowd and working with them and shooting footage and then, you know, realizing with David that we could just make things on our own from my documentary approach that like we could release instead of doing a traditional stand up set, like putting out that film Let America Laugh instead of a normal stand up video or, you know, just kind of me being able to do his uh, bigger and blacker special, which functioned like a stand up special, but kind of deconstructed it that like I could do that on my own without the kind of typical infrastructure of like an HBO comedy shoot. And then that's kind of like crossed over into like doing weird comedy films with uh, other people as specials. Like we did one for Todd Berry that was, uh, you know, the crowd work tour that we did earlier this year where we kind of ran around the country. Louis C.K. produced it and shot him doing stand-up where he went up with no material at all and just sort of like interacted with the crowd the whole time and covered it pretty much like the entire West Coast, including Alaska for that. Um, Louis C.K. put that out on his website earlier this year did one for Chelsea Peretti that's on Netflix right now called One of the Greats that I'm really happy with and she's so sharp and smart and inventive and had a great solid like hour and 15 minutes of stand-up material and then was brilliant enough to like on top of that be able to like conceive and write all these weird deconstructions of how the self-aggrandizing intros that dudes have for their comedies but you know to sort of like re-examine how those things are all constructed and how the audience reaction shots are normally handled and kind of fuck with that format the whole way. And she was like not only sharp and smart enough to conceive all those things and then like we shot them and they came out well but she committed to them and didn't like second guess herself or be like maybe we shouldn't end with like dead silence and no one clapping and the audience asleep like let's show them laugh. you know like she like committed to it and, and didn't back down and we pulled it off i'm really happy with that one just did one for kyle canane that'll run on comedy central where we went back to the 40 watt club in athens which was a hugely significant place to me and uh and shot it there which was great like more of like a, a rock crowd, you know, in a in a cool space rather than a typical like theater for a comedy special. Um and I've been doing like events. I'm, I'm going to go do a uh, event at Sketchfest in San Francisco in the spring and I've been asked by some other comedy festivals to go like kind of cuz I've shot so much stuff with comedians over the years that we haven't released. Uh like showing excerpts of things that I've never really put out and then bringing up comedians that I'm fond of or whose work I like.
1: It would be, you know, I heard you last year on Duncan Trussell's podcast. Oh yeah. Um, It would be so cool for you to do something with him. I feel like that dude is so interesting. It's tough. I got to say, like, I'll call him out a little bit. I keep
0: (laughs) keep coming up with events where I invite him to go do something and he finds reasons not to show up or do it. He really should. Like, I feel like I want to get him out into other parts of the world than his own audience right now. And sort of, like, share him with more people that are beyond, like, who he's hitting. There's, yeah, like, I keep trying to bring him to different cities to do events or screenings
1: and he's like I don't know you know <laughs> yeah he comes out here maybe like once a year yeah. every two years but um his friend Emil Amos has been on oh great bunch of, we're doing a live event with him next week oh but, cool That'll yeah be good. he's great um uh, that's another good connection like you know um,
0: Emil ended up like doing a bunch of shows with uh with Water opening up which is Britt Walford's new music project that he's doing uh in, in recent time and so it was great that they you know were all like playing in the same shows together.
1: Yeah. yeah. So my band is on Temporary Residence too. Yeah. And I know you worked with Jeremy on yeah. the box but yeah, it's so wild like I feel like some of the people on the roster it's like yeah, it's amazing. It's unreal. But yeah, have you heard um have you heard any the Grail stuff? Yeah, it's great. It's, it's so, good. so good, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's excellent. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff or mostly I music? Do, yeah. yeah. It's like it it's You know, I'll kind of
0: alternate between like listening to music and then, you know, occasionally like just driving around or listening to a podcast and catching up on stuff.
1: That's awesome, man. Well, yeah. Well, I'm sure you have a crazy day today. So I appreciate you so much for coming by, man. This has been great. Are you going to, how did the coffee do? Did it give you energy? Yeah, I feel completely,
0: I'm not like really a coffee drinker and I tried one right now and I feel like my brain is on fire.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's all we can ask for.
2: Oh, man. Yes. Why didn't I sit in on
1: that? I have no idea, Brad. Uh, dude, you really blew it on that one. I
2: just, I guess I need to pay more attention to what's going on here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, this is a, yeah, this was kind of thrown together last minute, but uh,
2: I, I had, I was having my own podcast with an old friend yes, of mine. Yes, that's Bill Wilson important. showed up, Blackout Records, shout out. He put out my first record and uh, he came by to visit me this morning, and that's why I missed the podcast. Yes, that's a good which, reason is obviously an awesome podcast
1: yes as you have just heard yeah it was super cool podcast um i actually also interviewed lance for a print publication uh and that's gonna be coming out uh, i think pretty soon um we talk about you know some similar a lot of different stuff than this but the same kind of ideas kind of about creativity and 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 you know creating art and making stuff so i'll keep you guys posted on that um other stuff going on with us?
2: I'm trying to think. Well, huh, we just had our live show. That should be just out by the time, time you're show. hearing this. So that'll be
1: out by the time you hear this, but it hasn't actually happened yet. So oh. I think it went great. Yeah. It's weird talking about something <laughs> as if it's over when it hasn't happened yet.
2: It was great, dude. I it think was a it, great pot it was a great night, thanks to all um, you know, you people who made it and didn't make it. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh my god. That one drunk guy was super annoying.
2: Ah, uh, what about that hot chick in the second row? Did you see her?
1: <laughs> yes.
2: I kept screwing up the cues because of her.
1: Yeah. Well, you were great. I couldn't even tell. <laughs> it was seamless. <laughs> but yeah, so we just did a live podcast. Um, what else? It, to... it was,
2: now that we've now that we done this, now that we've made this joke, you know what's going to happen, right? The, the recording is going to get completely fucked up. What's it? It's just going to happen now. We're not oh, going to have we're a live like podcast.
1: It's like this, being on the cover <laughs> of Sports we've, Illustrated. We just
2: jinxed it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you're probably right. Great. Now um, I just
2: double-jinxed it.
1: Uh, I also, <laughs> uh, I recently redid my website. I have a Tumblr site now. Whoa. But it's just com, and I, like, I'm archiving all of my band stuff, and the podcast, every episode of the podcast is on it, and my writing. So, I don't know. If you're bored, you want to see what I'm up to. Wow. I need to get on that. Dude, it was so easy. My friend helped me, but it was so easy to set it up.
2: I've been sitting on bradworld.com for about... Five years and really keep meaning to do that. Just kind of uh, uh, you know aggregate. Uh, what do you call it, aggregate? Everything yeah, you just put in the links there. and like uh yeah. Because obviously I've got a lot of cool content, but yeah, I just never do anything with it. Brad
1: World, huh? Brad World. Oh, gotcha. I thought you, <laughs> I
2: thought you were like I'm sitting on BradWorld.com. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a really interesting URL. <laughs> I like it. You should try to get Brad World. Yeah, I well I thought of changing my name to Brad World at one point.
1: <laughs> you should change your name to bradworld.com. That's, that's where I live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh yeah, we're coming at you live from Bradworld. Um but yeah, uh check us out um if you like the podcast, um check us out, leave us a review on iTunes, uh goingofftrack.com, you can donate. We have a Twitter. We all have individual twitters. Uh you know, I, I think you guys can find all that stuff if you're interested. Or easy to find. Yeah, we uh we have no sponsors to thank, so I'm not thanking anyone. <laughs> and
2: uh, yeah, I'd like to f- f- thank our founders, Stephen Smith and Michael Kenjemi. Yes,
1: Stephen Smith and Michael Kenjemi, who are always missed when they're not here, always here in spirit. Um, those guys. Uh, it was great seeing Mike at the Live Podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, those guys. Hopefully, will be back soon in some formation. We're just sort of going through a little bit of a transitional yeah stage right now. But uh, yeah, it's all good. Um and yeah, we will be back next Wednesday with someone awesome. For, someone awesome. They are going to be awesome. They're going to be so good. Even better than our show last week, next week, last week. <laughs> okay. Uh see you next week.